Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, Stacy is going to grab a few copies off the printer. Yeah, it's printing now. So if you didn't get one, you should be able to get one in a second. Uh, I'm sorry. Typically with this kind of thing, you have the most people the first week, and then it goes down. So I, I praise God. What a great problem to run into. Thank you for coming. Um, excited to dive into Article 2 here. Uh, I want to start with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to answer a question we had from last week uh, briefly because it didn't come up in the article, and then, and then we'll dive in. So let's pray together first. Holy God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that you have sent him to bear the penalty and the weight of our sin, to die on the cross so that we would be forgiven of our sin and that we would be freed from its bondage. As we study you specifically, Lord, your attributes and your works and your character, Lord, would you please open up our minds to the magnificent beauty of your three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God. We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to start. Um, I was really hoping that this would come up in the article. It didn't quite, though it you'll see in just a little bit that it sort of comes up in something. But I'm going to answer it right off the bat. So that was the question, does God ever change his mind? Um, we read a scripture that says that God is not a man that he should lie or that he should change his mind. Um, and so there's a, a verse that I want you to read. You can see it for yourself. It's in the book of Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter 3. Great. If you still need a paper, raise your hand so Stacy can see and she'll hand it to you. Thank you, sweetie. It's really easy to pass over. And mine is literally just one page, and I keep going back and forth on it. So the book of Jonah. Chapter 3, all right, and I want to draw your attention to verse 4 here. So if you're not familiar with Jonah, that is shocking in the Bible Belt. Uh, But just in case you're unfamiliar with Jonah, God tells Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh and tell that city that it's going to be overthrown. And so Jonah doesn't want to do that because he knows that God is a God of mercy. He says, these people don't deserve mercy. So he doesn't want to do that. So he gets swallowed by a giant fish. God has his way. Three days later, he spit out. He says, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. So he goes to Nineveh and he declares in verse four, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now that was his message. The message wasn't turn to the Lord in repentance. It was in 40 days, you're done. So then we're going to go further down here into verse 10. So in verses uh, 5 through 9 there, what happens is the word reaches the king and he rises. He says, everyone, put on just uh, this um, sackcloth and sit in ashes. And it says, by proclamation, by decree of the king, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or water or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Who knows, in verse 9, God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Then verse 10 here, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
Some of your translations, instead of relented, it might say changed his mind. We run into this problem when we try to describe who God is or what God does because God is God. We are not God. So there's this literary device that I'm not going to get right on a recording that's going to go online called anthropomorphism. Can I get somebody to verify that that's right? Okay, so uh, anthropomorphism is treating something with human characteristics. Okay, so like we would say, um, uh, I'm not going to think of an example now, but we give an inanimate object a human characteristic. It ran or it jumped or it shook. Okay, we don't really mean that that happened. It's a, it's, do what? The dog talked. There you go. The dog talked. Okay, dogs don't speak English, but we understand what that is saying. Okay, so when we describe God, we have to use terms to try to describe him that sometimes don't really do it justice. For example, when it says that the Lord remembers his covenant with Israel, is it that God forgot the covenant? <laughs> Did God just suddenly, oh, I I forgot you were in captivity for over 400 years. Okay. No, it's a word that we're using to try to help us to piece together who God is and what he's doing. So to show how this isn't an example of God changing his mind, it's an example of him responding to a different situation in a different way. To see this for yourself, I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 21 through 23. Ezekiel 18, 21 through 23. There's another verse kind of like this, I think, later in chapter 30. uh, But this, I I think, really just helps us out a lot. Ezekiel chapter 18, 21 through 23. And then we'll get into our material. So I want you to think about these verses that we're about to read as God's mindset. This is what what God has set himself to do. Ezekiel 18, 21 through 23. I'm going to go ahead and start reading while you're finishing turning there. It says, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So God's mind has not changed in how he's handling Nineveh. His mindset has been the same the whole time. It's just now Nineveh is on the right side of this equation rather than the wrong side. So where God was going to give them one thing because of where they were at, they repented. And so now God relents from this and he executes this. Has he changed his mind? Has he acted inconsistently? No, he has not. It's the same as if we're on a journey from somewhere. We start in one city and we're driving to another. But somewhere along the way, we have to make a turn. Well, while we're on this road, all the signs on the highway may say heading to Las Vegas or heading whatever other city over in that direction. But we know we're not really going there. I'm going somewhere up in Colorado. Well, at some point, I'm going to hit a different road. My destination hasn't changed. But now the signs are reading different. The signs haven't changed. I am on a different I'm in a different place at that moment. So. Kind of an analogy to help us think about it. Uh, If you want more on that, come get me later because I want to get to our material today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why does changing your mind necessarily indicate that you're inconsistent? Uh, What do you mean? Uh, Unpack that a little bit. Well, you just said 
you know, God wasn't being inconsistent in changing his mind. Yes, in how he's in how he's dealing with them. So if you change your mind, the way we change our mind, I might say, okay, the punishment for this crime is, uh, you know, Gabriel, Kristen, you don't get candy tonight, okay? And then later I'm like, okay, I'm gonna change my mind. The the punishment, you, you do get candy. You're complaining. I, you get, but you only get one piece of candy, okay? So I am being inconsistent in my judgment there. I've changed my mind, and in that sense of the term, God does not change his mind. Does that make sense? So he cannot decide suddenly, uh, you know what? The penalty that Christ paid for your sins, uh, it's not enough anymore. I changed my mind. He would not change his mind and be inconsistent in that way. But he does decide to treat a situation differently because of... um, because of his complex nature. You know, he's going to show mercy to the wicked who repents. That, that hasn't changed. Now, the reason that Nineveh got mercy and then Sodom and Gomorrah didn't is because they didn't repent from their sin. So God's not being inconsistent with those two cities. He's completely consistent within his nature. In this instance, the city repented, and it's in God's nature to forgive repentance. And then in this instance, they didn't. Does that kind of help clarify? Yeah, I just mean to me. What you're saying is he didn't change his mind, he changed his actions. Yes, that's right. Consistently, and he would have done that consistently across the board if someone else had been in that similar situation. Yeah, he's not picking and choosing what standard he's going to use when and changing his mind in that regard. That's right, yes. Okay, so now um, we're going to look at Article 2 there. So um, I've given you, just like last week, the um, 1925, 63, and 2000 iterations of that. And um, I've grouped it together in three categories here. Um, uh, I took the first line of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and then the very last couple of lines. They're kind of the same topic, so I put that together. And then almost everything in between all fits together, so we'll do that second, and then one final line, third. So we'll, we'll begin here. It says, there is one and only one living and true God. And then at the end of that article, it says the eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. We might look at this and think this is just unnecessarily technical. What in the world? Why do we need this? Bear with me for just a second and this will make sense. So I'm going to start with this phrase that there is only one living and true God. So there's one God. If you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, you'll see a perfect example of this, a very famous example. This is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Be very familiar to some of you. Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4. And this is one of the verses the, the Baptist faith and message gives. So it says right here, plain and simple. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In my Bible, there's a little three there next to it. So you can go down to the bottom and they kind of unpack that Hebrew a little bit more if you want to do some extra study there. It says, or another way to translate this accurately would be the Lord our God is one Lord. Or the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or the Lord our God, the Lord alone. So the idea is that there is one Lord. And he is our Lord, and there is no other Lord. There is one God only, okay? Isaiah 
45, verses 5 through 6. I'm going to ask you to turn there as well. We're going to do uh, not a whole bunch of turning today, but uh, I do want you to see some of these things because ultimately our faith is in what the Bible teaches and not in man's creeds. We learned last week the Bible tests man's opinions. So we need to make sure that these things are biblical. Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 6. Isaiah 45, 5-6. And this phrase will come up several times in this chapter, uh, I believe. Uh, yeah, I see it there in 14. So, so you can keep reading this chapter. You'll see it multiple times. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 for us. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. He's actually talking about a man that he's going to rise up named Cyrus there. Uh, But the message is clear. There is no other God besides the Lord. So we believe there is one God. Now we come to this interesting thing here. The phrase triune God who reveals himself to us as father, son, Holy Spirit. So we believe there is one God, but there are three distinct persons. Okay. To see this uh, in an easy to access place, you can turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verse 19. This is the Great Commission. So we'll be very familiar with this. Easy place to see this. Um, Another one that I'm not going to read for you if you want to just jot it down would be John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. That one is also in the Baptist Faith and Message included there. So Matthew uh, 28, starting here in verse 19. I'll back up. Uh, Jesus says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit there. You don't see the word Trinity, but the idea is present. Now I want you to back up in Matthew to chapter 3, and I want to show you this in action. Matthew chapter 3, and this one is not in the, in the Baptist Faith and Message. Um, a little surprising to me, but I think that's okay. Matthew three sixteen through 17. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this personally. So we see the baptism of Jesus. He comes to John in the Jordan to be baptized. And then John says in short, uh, you should be baptizing me. Why am I baptizing you? And Jesus answers, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now listen to what happens here. When Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we see all three persons of the Trinity acting here in this verse. The Son is being baptized and coming up as the Spirit is coming down from heaven, as the Father is speaking from heaven. The Son is not doing the speaking. The Son is doing the being baptized. 
The Father is not doing the descending. The Spirit is doing the descending. So we have one God, but we see clearly in Scripture there's three distinct persons, each one performing different distinct tasks at various moments. Okay, This is a complex doctrine. Uh, I'm not going to pretend like we're going to cover the whole doctrine right here, right now. If you want to dive into that later, that would take a whole lesson Maybe two just to cover that doctrine. I'm just stating this is what it is that we believe. Okay. Now, some additions and subtractions here. Uh, in the whole first article, from the very beginning of Article 2, there are no subtractions. They don't ever remove anything. The only changes are some small grammatical choices you'll notice if you read through. Um, so an example would be, at one point it says, to whom we owe. And then later they say, to him we owe. So if you count that as a change, there it is. But there's no significant subtractions from the general teaching. Okay. Now the 1963 adds this phrase. You'll see it there in green. The eternal God reveals himself to us as. Okay. As opposed to he is revealed, God actively reveals himself to us. And then the 2,000 kept that, but then they added the word here, triune. You'll also notice that in the 1925 version, you just have the one article and that's it. But then in 63 and 2000, suddenly we go to like a two-page discourse on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So obviously there was some um, religious theological issue where they said, we need clarity on this. It's not good enough anymore to just say, okay, here's God and this is what we believe. We need to define and to expand. What do we believe about the Father? What do we believe about the Son? What do we believe about the Spirit? In the, in the early 1990s, why did this come about? In the early 1990s, oneness Pentecostalism began to crop up in the U.S., and it, it existed for a long time. It's basically a charismatic movement that denies the Trinity. So they would believe that there is one God, that's where oneness comes from, and sometimes he manifests himself as Father, sometimes he manifests himself as Son, sometimes he manifests himself as Holy Spirit. It depends on what he wants to do in that moment that determines how he is manifesting himself. Okay? Since there is only one God, he cannot exist in three distinct persons, or else he would be three gods. Muslims also have a hard time with this. They would call us as Christians, they would call us tritheists. You believe in three gods. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one, three persons. Hard to understand, but that's what we believe. Now, this teaching is actually very ancient. Ancient? <laughs> I always say ancient, and that's apparently not right. Uh, this belief is actually an ancient false teaching called modalism, and it popped up in the 3rd century A.D. Here's what modalism says. God presents himself in different modes. Right now I'm father, but in a little bit I'll stop being father, and now I'm going to be the son. And in a little bit I'm going to stop being the son, and then I'm going to be the Holy Spirit. And all the way back in the 3rd century, they defeated that heresy, and it was gone for a long, long time, occasionally cropping up, but mostly non-existent. Well, like most other heresies, it pops back up and goes away in time. And around the 1940s, 50s, oneness Pentecostalism started to branch out of its own denomination, and some of these teachings were popping up in churches 
from people who, who basically agreed with this. And so the um, Southern Baptist Convention said we need to address this to make it clear what the Bible teaches. So that's why it seems like you don't need that. But then we have to um, account for these things. So um, building on top of that, I'm just going to give you one reason here. Well, why is denying the doctrine of the Trinity really that significant? Why would we say it's, it's a deal breaker in our fellowship with other brothers and sisters or other people who claim to be Christians? Okay, And I'm going to give just one main reason here. When we deny that there are distinct persons in the Trinity, we are denying the personal relationships between the members of the Trinity. Listen to this. If they are not distinct persons, how are we going to explain Jesus praying to the Father? He's praying to himself in that instance. How are we going to explain when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit interceding to the Father for us, or the Son bearing the wrath of the Father, or the Son dying while the Father and the Spirit live. If we do away with the Trinity, these are really hard to explain. We have to say, well, it's, it's an illusion. Well, then why would God do that? Why would he send that illusion? Is he trying to be deceptive? Is he trying to be tricky? It's just a big charade almost is what it would seem like. So to deny this is a really big deal because it really attacks the heart of Christianity. The Father pouring out his wrath on the Son and then sending the Spirit to live within us as believers. So in light of all this, how should we understand the Trinity? Make it real simple for me. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father. Okay? That they are not each other. But the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They are the same being. Okay, You'll see that in the, at the end of the Baptist faith and message there. Without division of nature, essence, or being. So they are the same being. It's just three persons. Well, how does God do that? Well, you know he's God. I don't exist in three beings. I exist in one being. I'm not God. But God does. Okay, So that's the first one here. Now this next part, um, and, and I'm excited about this as well. It says, and this is one unbroken chunk here. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being. The creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. And his perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future including the future decisions of his free creatures. So this middle section covers God's attributes and his actions. A simple way to think about this is, who is God? What does he do? If you can remember that, who is God? What does he do? As you read scripture, you're going to find that God is often described this way. They say who God is, then they say what he's done. This is what you were like, God. This is what you've done for us. This is his being. These are his works. Comes up all the time, and that's the format they take here. Okay, So these are tied together. We're not going to go through all of God's attributes in this study. That would take a good while. We might do another study in the future on something like that. What I want to focus on here is this phrase that was added in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. 
So here's what was added. It's a very, it's a pretty significant chunk here that they added in 2000. God is all powerful and all knowing and his perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. Now, this section is really an an expansion of the previous statement, which says God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. So all in all of his attributes, he is infinitely perfect in these things. So now they're applying that to his knowledge. It says that God is all powerful. This refers to his omnipotence. That means that God can do anything that he wills anything that he desires, it does not mean God can do anything. How many of you ever heard the question, well, if God's all powerful, can he make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Right? I heard this in student ministry a lot. It came up a whole lot. People get on Instagram or whatever, see this famous atheist and this argument, and they're like, oh, look, see, God's not real. I'm like, okay. Um, I don't believe that, that that is illogical. First of all, let's break it down. If God can make a rock that was so big that it would be God and he wouldn't be God, you, you, can't, you can't think of it in these terms. God's omnipotence doesn't mean I can do anything. He can't make a square circle. That's an illogical, contradictory set of terms. He can't make a blue fudge or a blue delicious. That doesn't make sense. Okay, What God does is whatever he wants to do. There is something that you can do right now that God could never do. There is. Can anybody tell me what it is? Sin. God can never do that. So to say God is omnipotent doesn't mean that God can do anything in the world. Well, can God not be God? That's illogical. God can do anything he wants to do. He would never, ever want to not be God or he wouldn't be God. Okay. So that's all powerful. Again, we're not going to break all that down. We may study that later. So then it goes to the all-knowing. This refers to God's omniscience. He knows all things. And this all aspect applies to all parts of God's being, but the 2000 here really zeroes in on God's knowledge, especially as it relates to his creatures, okay, primarily us. So between 1980 and 2000, a system of theology known as open theism began becoming really popular. It's also called process theology. Um, uh, We're not going to get into all that. We'll just stay with open theism. So basically what this teaches is that the future is open regarding God's knowledge. God doesn't know all things that's going to happen in the future. Specifically, the thing he doesn't know is what I'm going to do. He doesn't know what I'm going to decide to do in five seconds. God didn't know I was going to do that. You didn't know I was going to do that, obviously. Success. Okay, God couldn't know I was going to do that because if he knew I was going to do that, then it wasn't really my choice to do. It was already determined. I can't be free and God know what I'm going to do. That's what open theism began to propose. And there were several very prominent theologians that advocated this type of theology. Basically, God is um, in a process of increasing towards omniscience. And he becomes more omniscient as he sees his creatures making free decisions. So God is growing in knowledge. His mind is changing to a degree, kind of tying back to what we talked about earlier. I don't think I have to convince us why this might be dangerous, 
But we need to acknowledge that this is what is kind of leading up to this. God is learning about us as we make decisions. So they would hold, a process theologian or open theist would hold that we cannot be free creatures and God be all-knowing at the same time. They are incompatible with one another. So what the Baptist faith and message clarifies is a position called compatibilism. We believe that those are compatible. We believe that God can know all things and that we can be totally free, responsible creatures that make genuine decisions. So the Baptist faith and message clarifies that. And it says that he is infinite in holiness, all his perfections, powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. Now, we might be hard-pressed to fully explain how that works, but that doesn't mean that it's contradictory. In the same way that I can't really explain how a television works, but I know when I hit the on button, a picture pops up. Okay, So we don't have to be able to fully explain this for it to be true. And I want to give a passage for us here in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. I don't think they have this in the Baptist faith and message either. I try to point out which ones I'm pulling from that and which ones I'm not. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. And I'm going to start, it kind of comes in mid-clause mid, uh, there, mid-sentence, so I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit to verse 8. God says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. There it is again. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. If you want an example of God doing this, we read from Isaiah 45 earlier. He's talking about Cyrus, God's instrument. This was written before Cyrus was even born, and he would grow up to be a king who would accomplish all of the things here that God describes for him. God designed him for those things. So God can know all things about us, including what we're going to do, and we still make genuine decisions at the same time. How? You know it's a mystery. If I could understand that, I would probably be God, but I am not. Okay, so that's that's um, kind of behind that. So this last one here for us, and then we can uh, have some time for questions. It says to him, we owe the highest love, reverence and obedience. So I want to point out the word highest here because God is infinitely loving, all knowing, etc. Our response to him should be the highest response. And this actually leads to our application. I'm pulling our application right from this phrase here. So there's kind of three, three phrases here, three human responses to God's being. How should we respond to God? Number one, 
We ought to respond to God in love. We ought to respond to God in love, the highest form of love. In a relationship, think about this. You want to be in relationship with someone who loves you despite your flaws. When you begin dating someone, you don't know all the flaws. You don't know if they cap the toothpaste or leave it uncapped so that it dries and gets crusty. You don't know that about a person. You find that out later. Well, whenever you're in that relationship, what you really don't want is for someone, you get home, you take your shoes off, and your spouse to look at your feet and go, Ugh, your toes. I'm done. And to leave. You want someone who loves you in spite of your toes or in spite of the crusty on the toothpaste. That's what we want in a relationship. We are attracted to people based on who we think they are and what we think they're like. But then once you get to know the real person, that's what separates like from love. You love someone. You look past their flaws. We love someone despite their flaws. Now think about this. This is the reason that we should love God the highest because God knows more about us than anyone and he loves us. He knows everything you've ever thought, anything you've ever even remotely considered doing or saying to someone, anything you ever have thought or said about someone. He knows everything about us and he loves us and he died for us. So he doesn't care about our flaws. He said, I will get rid of that. Therefore, we should love God and we should affirm his attributes because if God is not all-knowing, well, what if God changes his mind when he learns this about me? Well, what if God learns about what I did many years ago and I can't ever forgive myself for? Surely God can't forgive me of that. Paul was a Christian killer and he said, I am the chief of sinners. But guess what? God died for him too. So God knows everything about us and he loves us. We need to embrace God's attributes rather than rejecting them so that we can better understand God. We need to embrace them and respond in love. That's number one. Number two, human response to God's being. We need to respond in reverence. Now, this is similar to last week. We respond to God's word in reverence. However, now we have a foundation for our reverence. We, we revere God's word because it's the revelation of God. Now we see why do we revere God. The Baptist faith and message confirms that God is infinite in holiness. He knows all things and is all powerful. And he knows everything you've ever done as the ruler of the universe. Do you really think you're going to escape his gaze? You will not. That's why it is vital for all people everywhere to trust in Christ. We ought to revere God and be appreciative of his power and submit to him in reverence. You can't outsmart him. You can't think of something he hasn't thought of. You can't catch him off guard. God's infinite perfection is the foundation of our reverence. And if God should lose any of these attributes, he would not be worthy of reverence. And then the third how should we respond to God? We should respond in obedience. Knowing who God is, what he's done for me, I should respond to God in obedience. God, I willingly submit myself to you as you already knew I would do, which is mind-blowing. But I'm here, 
and I am submitting myself to you in obedience. We ought to obey the Lord. We ought to trust his wisdom and his intelligence. Okay, so um, that is, again, just a real brief scan. We're going to go over God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit uh, as we continue to move through this. That was way too much to cover in one session there. But does anybody have any questions on um, this first little portion of, of Article two of anything we've talked about? The yeah. one that was explained to me, you are a pastor, you are a father, and you are a husband. Mm-hmm. But you're one person. Mm-hmm. So that's the way the Trinity was explained to me sometime through the years. So there's been a lot of, I'm trying to think who I first heard this from, I don't remember. But there's been a lot of different analogies I've heard. One analogy I've heard is that it's like a three-leaf clover. It's one flower, but there's three different leaves. Or I've heard it's kind of like the sun. You have the sun, but then you feel the heat of the sun, and there was another one. Or it's like water, and there's three states. It can be a gas, it could be a liquid, or it could be um, a solid. It could be ice. And here's what I found about these analogies as I've tried to use them over time. I think every analogy necessarily probably breaks down in some way at some point. I think they're all helpful if we consider them all in trying to understand parts of the Trinity, but I don't know if any one ever adequately ever adequately really explains it. Because even in that analogy, I'm exercising my office at different times. I may be all those all the time, but I'm exercising it at different times. Or it also doesn't address the idea that they are separate persons. That's right. Like We don't have a category for understanding that. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, that's just, it's hard to get your mind around. Well, I think we're really not, we're not supposed to understand everything. Mm-hmm. Because if we could understand everything, we would have to have faith. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we were meant to totally understand the concept of the truth. Mm-hmm. I think we can grow in our knowledge of it, but and the way that I like to think about it's related to that is if you could fully comprehend the mind of God, you would have the mind of God. Now that that sometimes is used as an excuse for ignorance, okay? Like therefore, well, you know what? I believe it, okay, whatever, and then we disengage intellectually. And I think that's another error on the opposite end of the spectrum. We're never going to fully understand God, but we should be growing in our knowledge and understanding of God. And so I think that's what is helpful in some of the analogies is that it helps expand and stretch. But then I think that we should never cling to just one analogy because, like Becky pointed out with with that example, they're all going to break down somewhere. My favorite for a long time was there was some kind of scientific article somewhere where they took uh, water and made it into the three states, solid, liquid, and gas, 
Well, it changes. Like if it's ice, it's not gas while it's ice. So that one breaks down. But they ran an experiment and did something to it where they got water to exist in all three states at the exact same time. And I, I'm not a sciencey person. I can't explain that. But as a Christian, I was like, oh, maybe that's the perfect analogy. But then it always seems to break down. There's always some way that it breaks down. And so it's okay that the doctrine of the Trinity is hard for us to wrap our minds around. I think if you find a great analogy for it, that is wonderful. Um, but just make sure that we are not sacrificing um, something that the Bible tells us about the Lord in favor of an analogy. Because in so far, I've never once heard the perfect one, and I'm always on the lookout for it. But I hadn't quite heard it yet. Hadn't quite gotten here yet. So we'll see. Time will tell. Any other questions? Comments? Yeah. For the people who believe that um, that we worship three gods or God is limited in his knowledge, you know, he doesn't know what we're doing in five minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that breaks down when it comes to uh, Jesus dying on the cross with all our sins. Mm-hmm. He had to know what sins we were going to commit. Mm-hmm. Or he wouldn't have or he would have had to die again mm-hmm. and again for the sins that he didn't perceive. Hmm. That's actually really good. Thank you. That's great. <laughs> I mean, I'm not shocked. I mean, I expect brilliance from you all the time. I'm not. That's good. Good comment. Any other questions? Okay. We are just scratching the surface. There's a line um, uh, from, uh, maybe it's from Job where it talks about understanding God, but we've just touched the fringes of his robe. This is just the fringes of the robe that is God. And so if this interests you, I've got some good books on this. Uh, Some of them get really technological and uh, theological and deep. Some of them are written for people like me that I need like common man vocabulary words that I'll have to look up every fifth word that are really helpful. So if you want more reading on this, let me know. Um, Over the next several weeks, we'll dive into each individual person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I'll close this in prayer. And then if anybody else has anything, you know, you can stay back and we can talk however long you want. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are such a mighty God, that we don't have to be able to fully comprehend you or understand you because you are infinite in your perfections. We cannot fully comprehend you. But we also are grateful, Lord, that you are not illogical, that you do not bend or contort in different ways at different times, that you are consistent, that you are loving towards us consistently that you are constantly growing our minds so that we can understand and love you more. Lord, please continue, especially in our study uh, through the Baptist faith and message as we try to ask the question, what do we believe the Bible teaches about these important issues? Please stretch and grow us so that we might love you more, revere you more highly, and better obey you as your followers. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.